1: Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me I have a special guest, Gene Epstein. Gene Epstein is the director and moderator of the Soho Forum, a monthly debate forum held in New York City and features topics of special interest to libertarians. Gene is also former economics and books editor at Barron's, and he's taught economics at the City University of New York and St. John's University. He's also worked as a senior economist for the New York Stock Exchange. Gene, thanks for being with us.
0: Pleasure to be with you, Doug.
1: So you're, you're the kind of guy that, you know, we've had conversations over email for various reasons, and I've heard you on Tom Woods' show. And you're the kind of guy that I just like to ask a lot of questions regarding finance. Uh, sure. And I don't mean like the boring stuff like, you know, how should I invest? Although maybe, maybe you could <laughs> give us some advice. But like okay. all of this, man, I, I can't get on Facebook any time at all, and I don't have friends posting things about wage stagnation, the fight against the wealthy, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, inequality, the purchasing power of the dollar, the rich are getting richer. I mean, it's just it's just a plethora of all kinds of stuff, and um, you're going to help me sort it all out in about ten minutes, right?
0: <laughs> well, sure. Uh, I uh, I have it pretty much. Th- these are issues that uh, that obsessed me as well. Uh, I am a bleeding heart capitalist. Uh, I'm a libertarian who believes in freedom, but I'm also very strongly a consequentialist. And uh, I am uh, very concerned with how uh, the economic system is treating the broad masses of people. So uh, I've got a few things to say about that.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the the. let's just start with a big camera picture here. We pull the camera back and we think about inequality. And is it I, I think this st- the stats that I've read, it shows that there's some growing inequality, whether or not that's even a problem is is even the case or maybe isn't it happening? Like, mm-hmm. what is your take on on the claims of inequality? The billionaires are getting wealthier, et cetera.
0: Yeah, well, no, definitely in terms of the distribution of income, uh, the distribution of wealth, uh, we you can show that over the last uh, 30 years, uh, inequality has widened. Uh, now, uh, however, if we get into uh, the distribution of consumption, then uh, I think it's important to note that uh, you get different results. You get some widening of, of inequality in terms of dollars, but it's much narrower. And that, of course, is because uh, rich people who get far more income uh, tend not to consume nearly as much proportionally as uh, they get uh, because so much of it goes for taxes, goes uh, for um, investment, and indeed goes for philanthropy. And so the distribution of consumption in terms of dollars is much narrower. Uh, one, the bottom half of the population accounts for about one-third of all consumption. The bottom four-fifths accounts for uh, nearly two-thirds. Now, obviously, that means that the, that the top fifth accounts for a little more than a third. So that's unequal, but it isn't nearly as stark in terms of dollars, as the distribution of, of uh, uh, as the widening distribution of income itself suggests, but then there's a third issue, which um, I think is more subtle, but uh, but nonetheless something that we should all look at, which is that, for example, uh, economists like Don Boudreau and others point out that money is less important uh, and of course oftentimes a bit confusing because we when we talk about how far people have gone in life we have to use price indexes because there's always inflation there's nominal incomes and then there's price indexes and that tends to be a bit of a problem when we talk about the uh the advancement of the broad masses of people but in terms of of inequality um, oddly probably the most interesting question is this uh, how how far is the distance between the way most of us live and the way bill gates lives uh, and uh, and and oddly if you actually look at the things that we all take for granted or even the fact that people who are technically in poverty today about nearly half of them uh, own uh, own their own home. Uh, Most of them have air conditioning. Uh, That The distance between the the material standards of life between most of us, the vast majority of us, and Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos is possibly, possibly narrower in in terms of uh, subjective understanding of what goods and services mean than ever before. And the, the Maasai warrior has the same, uh, as a lot of people like to say, has this, has a very similar smartphone to the one that Bill Gates carries. And so uh, when you have so many goods and services uh, given to the broad masses of people, when you have used cars that now have more than 100,000 uh, miles of life left on them, trouble-free life on them, then very possibly, in terms of the real basket of consumer goods, inequality has narrowed. Uh, And so uh, those are actually the three dimensions, the income dimension in terms of dollars, the consumption dimension in terms of dollars, and then the material dimension in terms of goods and services. So really, in a way, there are three answers to that question that you just put to me.
1: So. When people claim that purchasing power has declined, that our dollars buy less, I mean, on the one hand, I want to say, well, sure, in some sense, like compared to maybe the gold standard that we were on. But on the other Mm. hand, I, you know, as a kid, I remember my dad, I'll just kind of admit here. He made more money than I do at my age At, at when I was a kid. and That was true. Yeah, my wait, dad also. <laughs> yeah. And so, well, but then I, w- I remember a childhood where we were well provided for, but there were things that my dad was like or my mom were like, no, those are too expensive. And then oh. I grow up and have kids of my own and they ask me for things at the store or whatever. And I'm like... And they're like, dad, it's only this price. And I'll be like, really? That's it? Like the thing that they're asking for that when I was growing up, like was way more time for me to earn, if you will, if you kind of uh, calculating how, how long it would take me to earn, you yeah. know, whatever toy it was. It's usually not a toy. It's usually something mm-hmm. they want to do like art or something like that. And I'm like, man, like, I feel like I can buy more even though I don't make as much. Is that yes. so there, I kind of have that tension when I think about this issue.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, well, indeed, uh, I, I think what you're suggesting uh, is that uh, probably uh, the, the most fruitful way, which is, of course, cumbersome way, but in a way, uh, cuts through the difficulties uh, of dealing with nominal incomes that, that we earn and price indexes. Because in order to arrive at real estimates, we have to use price indexes to deflate nominal incomes. I want to get to that part of it in a moment, but I want to address your point directly because you seem to be suggesting what any look at the basket of goods and services, the houses we live in, uh, to the, or the apartments we live in, the, the, uh, the, the cell phones we own, the cars we drive, the air conditioners we own, uh, all of the material conditions of life is defined by those baskets of goods. And it's very clear that the vast majority of us live uh, at a much higher standard than, for example, the vast majority lived in 1970, and so uh, I think that uh, uh, that that's that. What again? That requires a lot of research, and it's been a lot of it has been done. I like I always like to see it updated, uh, but uh, the, there there seems to be little question that if we look at that part of it, uh, then uh, then it's compelling that. We are all, the vast majorities are living better than ever before. Uh, now, I'm in a, I'm uh, I I do I do use price indexes. I do use nominal incomes. I've been covering the numbers for uh, for you know more than thirty years, and uh, uh, I know that many libertarians uh, believe that price inflation has been much worse uh, than the official numbers suggest. Uh, I've Tried to hunt this down. Uh, part of, part of. By the way, the reductio ad absurdum. I mean, the that there the was the absurd implications of the idea that prices have been rising by five and six percent a year, as has been suggested by some, would indicate would mean that if if you deflate the gdp numbers by that price index by by a 5 and 6% price index then then you find that output has actually declined over the last 10 years that there's been no growth at all and so most people appreciate my point when i make that that that, uh, that, that if you a, a place any trust at all in the recorded numbers we know obviously that that tens of, that that more than 20 million that tw- there's been a 20 million growth in the number of jobs over the, of the last 10 years uh, so uh, and we know that from universal counts from we, we, we have all kinds of evidence that there's been reasonable amount of economic growth over the last 10 years. and yet if you believe in a four to five percent price index, then that it's virtually flat. Now now I I, I I use one shorthand. If anybody asks me, well, you, look at a wage and look at look at a price index. And so uh, what, the one I use when I when, if I have that simple question is I take the official, number, uh, the, the average hourly wage of the lower four-fifths of, of the workforce, lower four-fifths in terms of pay, defined as uh, as production and non-supervisory workers, the, about 80% of the workforce, excluding the better paid 20%. So take that average hour, hourly wage, which goes back for decades, and deflate it by the personal cons- consumption expenditures deflator. Now that, that PCE deflator is the one that's used by the Bureau of Economic Analysis to deflate consumer spending uh, and, and arrive at real consumer spending. Uh, combine the two, take that wage and, uh, and then deflate it by that standard uh, measure uh, and, and you find that, uh, that the average hourly wage in real terms is at a record high. Uh, you find that it's grown substantially over the last 10 years. Um, and so uh, that's, and now then, of course, we're well, going to get all kinds of skepticism about whether these numbers are, are proper. In fact, I think that the personal consumption expenditure deflator overstates inflation. And I think that the average uh, hourly wage, as calculated by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, understates the increase in the wage. So, in fact, uh, I think that we're doing even better than these numbers suggest. But that's that's my best answer in shorthand. I'm, I'm actually trying to take a deep dive uh, with a, a lot of uh, good consultants on the way in which price indexes are calculated. And uh, I'm trying to um, and, and I have some various theories about why people honestly tend to doubt, um, the any price index. I think that I think it's actually for two reasons. They 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 add, they, they look at the idea that prices have only been rising by two percent, and they only notice that the prices that they pay that rose, and they don't notice the ones that fell. And secondly, at, in the life cycle as they go through time, they tend to buy more and more expensive services rather than goods. And I think that's another reason why they have the misperception the prices are rising faster than, than they actually are rising by. In fact, in fact, if you take a deep dive into the way the statistical agencies calculate price indexes, you find that there's all all that there is continues to be a considerable upward bias of nearly nearly one percentage point a year in the way they calculate their price indexes. So again that's just, just just, rough shorthand and a few statements, but, uh, but returning to the point again, just take the basket of goods and, and look at that, basket of goods and services, and you'll find people are living better than ever before.
1: So I have, I'm going to put on my skeptic hat for a moment here okay. with, with what you just said. And I really sure. want to know what you, cause I hear this pretty frequently, which is not yeah. a response. This is what I yeah. get in response okay. to those kinds of remarks. Cause I've, yeah. I've made something, you know, you know, similar to what you just said mm-hmm. and people are say, well, yeah, well, that's what the, that's what the Koch brothers want you to hear. That's what's okay. what <laughs> their think tanks have been paid to tell you the way the economy works. And like, brothers, they basically, okay. yeah, I mean, it could be any, any, just pick your, your wealthy billion who has a grind, an axe to grind uh it doesn't have to be them but uh what is yeah. your that's not really a response but like i don't even know what to say back because i'm like at that point they're not even they're not gonna listen to anything i say i guess but what do you mm-hmm. what would you say
0: Oh God! Well, okay. I mean, that's that's the you know this is not softball questions, okay? <laughs> uh, but all right. Uh, well, did I tell um, you I would send yeah, you softball I mean, questions? I mean, I guess I guess yeah, yeah, Of course not. No, <laughs> but um, just you know, just making that point, Doug. Uh, but but yeah, you yeah. Know, but but uh, the the I, I mean, I, I I guess one sort of oblique response would be to say that. I have no special horse in this race in this sense. Uh, I, I see, uh, I see a lot to complain about. Um, I, I, while I, while while I do believe what I just said that standards of living are higher, um, I, I do think that 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 the, that the performance has been terrible when you consider what could happen. Uh, if we un- really unleash the free market, uh, then uh, so so I I I, find I I I do I'm open in this sense. I do see I uh what a lot number of people report to me that for example uh, we have a huge increase in restrictive licensure in in factors that make it harder for people uh to shift jobs to become cosmetologists manicurists i protest i pr- i protest that, that 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 women in poor areas should, should be able to arrange the voices for other women and not have to go to college or to law school yeah, because those things can be learned on the job i think it's horrible the way Labor mobility is limited, which makes it difficult for people to earn a decent living. The the other horror is the way progressive communities like San Francisco and New York jack up the price of housing, so that it's difficult for labor to move to New York or to San Francisco and take advantage of better jobs. So that so that if I were to find that that by any measure, the measures that I just mentioned, if, if we look at the basket of goods and services, people are living no better than they than they did before, then I would be open to that. But the reason why I'm skeptical is that is that if you look at all the fortune the fortunes that were made over the last twenty years, it's the usual story. You only make Billions by selling goods and services to the masses. That's true of Jeff Bezos. It was true of Steve Jobs. And so, uh, so I guess when we talk about those billionaires, how do they do it? The Koch brothers are in their own business that can that again depends on 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 goods and services being sold to the masses. And so, when you look at the supply side, the, all of those goods and services being sold to the masses, from which those billions are made. Um, you, it does suggest to you that that uh, that 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 people are better off. But but I'm open. I, I could be open I, I, to to any other conclusion. I uh, I do I, I I do believe that the dynamics of a freely functioning capitalism. I could explain why that's the case. Mean that uh, that 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 wages are going to rise and in any kind of competitive marketplace for labor. Uh, wages will rise. I do point out that uh, that if you look at the 19th century, when, when government was not at all involved in the labor markets, wages rose, even though tens of millions of real wages rose, standards of living dramatically rose. Everybody knows that. If you compare the way the average person lived in 1870 to the way people lived, say, in 1920 or 1925, when the government wasn't involved, we can point to the fact that that it was only when there was market liberalization in China, starting in 1980, that people climbed out of dire poverty. We can compare East Germany to West Germany, fundamentally capitalist country like capitalist part of East Germany like West Germany versus the East, holding the culture constant, and look at the stark difference between what the way the way mainly capitalist economy delivered versus the East. Germany, where they had mainly socialism, or of course the tragedy of North Korea versus South Korea. But but if but if things have changed, then then it may be may be because, as I said, because we, we we have had a decline in economic freedom over the since 2000. However, however, um, if you look at, take an honest look at the numbers, at the way goods and services are allocated to the broad masses of people, the cell phones, the better cars that people drive. The fact, again, by the way, if you just look at poor people and what they buy, of course, we have this strange phenomenon, but poor people, for some reason, spend uh, 150% of their income uh, that, in other words, if you match what 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 the poor buy compared to what they officially get as income, you find that they're spending one hundred fifty percent. And uh, and and that and how do we resolve that? Well, partly because many of them have jobs on the side, uh, and uh, we also uh, re- resolve that by pointing out that maybe uh, maybe. The prices they're paying are lower than we think. So the evidence is pretty much everywhere uh, that uh, that, that, uh, that people are better off. And put it this way, I know that Hitler wasn't a vegetarian, uh, but officially he claimed he was. And so I would say to the vegetarians, let's say Hitler was a vegetarian. Is that in itself an argument against vegetarianism, just because Charles Koch agrees with me. Is that in itself an, arg- an argument against my case? You know Maybe maybe, uh, maybe people that you, uh, that you don't trust agree with me. So what? Let's evaluate what I'm saying on the basis of its merits.
1: Yeah, well, and you demonstrated that with your answer you're like you just went back to the numbers. So, that's yeah, that's, sure. that's that's a good answer. Uh okay. so you're you, you don't need softball questions, Gene. You're you're <laughs> well, you're a, you're a slugger, man. <laughs> All
0: right, thanks. For, thanks for the encouragement. So Don, you I mentioned
1: appreciate. supply side uh a little bit ago and I've yeah. I've had um I've had I would say conversations with people who kind of mock the whole concept of supply side economics and trickle down economics and saying, you know, if we just give billions give, quote unquote, give billions uh, to the wealthy, then the economy will just be, you know, after a few years, it'll trickle down and everybody will be better off. Um, And yet one economist told me that trickle down economics is just a pejorative term, uh, that it it doesn't really exist. It's just something the left wants to make up to make us sound like we're all about, you know, favoring the wealthy only. What are your, what's your take on those two things?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. First, I gather that uh, the term "trickle down" uh, was—I mean, I, you know—I don't think anybody knows who coined it, but I guess it came from uh, from economists or people or politicians or media people who uh, who wanted to belittle any aspect of the idea of trickle down. So it is a kind of a pejorative way of putting it. You know, it's you know, it's the you know, you know, your New Testament. What is it? Who's the? It was the woman who said to Jesus, "You know, I just I, I take the crumbs that drop from the table, or something like that." Yeah. It, it's kind of a it, it's kind of a uh, you know a, a way of putting it that that immediately makes it look as though uh, you know the, the capitalist is the Lord who's throwing a few bones uh, to the worker, and so it's not any kind of way I would put it, uh, but let's say let, let's use the term trickle down. It does have two meanings. Uh, as far as I can see, and one of them, one of them is nonsense, and the other, uh, it, the, the other does make a certain amount of sense. The, the, the first one that's nonsense, which which Thomas Sowell railed against, which I guess has been, a, which I guess the trickle down people try to apply, is the nonsensical part of it, is the way a capitalist enterprise works. Uh, Sowell made the point that uh, when when you run a business, uh, the uh, the workers get paid first. You know, the the goods, the goods or the goods or the services have to be produced, has to be put out there, and then you wait for the revenue to come in, and you hope you make a profit. So, so Sol's point was only that this turns the capitalist process on its head. Obviously, uh, the uh, the the whole point is that uh, you you weren't. You know, when I was working for, uh, for for News Corp or for Dow Jones, I got my wage. I ter- I contributed my uh, column to Barrons, and then it went out to sell and then uh, see if you can make a profit on that. So so therefore, in a way, the, the trickle down goes to the capitalist. You know, the work, in other words, the worker gets the money up front and the capitalist has to wait for the residual to see if any profits can be made. And of course, the, the capitalist system most appropriately consists is a profit and loss system you know profits encourage risk-taking but losses encourage prudence and the capitalist hopes for profits but often incurs losses and often has to go out of business and so the trickle down concept is nonsense when it applies to that because again it distorts the basic process whereby uh, people are paid up front and the capitalist takes the risk to see if he can make profits Uh, so that's the nonsense part the the part of it I guess where it's mostly applied to but you know maybe you know people who read up can tell me better it's mostly applied to tax breaks i guess now, now in the case of tax breaks it it, it obviously does make a certain amount of sense a priori, which is only that if you, if you give a tax break to somebody whose whose savings and investment rate is one third, versus giving a tax break to somebody whose savings and in, an investment rate is uh, is one tenth, then more than likely, then what will happen is if you give the tax break to the person with a much higher rate of savings and investment, uh, then you'll get savings and investment from that tax break versus giving the tax break to the person who has a much lower savings rate And so if that's trickled down then it does indeed make a certain amount of sense that that uh, that that the certainly the, the tax break to corporations especially that Trump, bestowed, especially when uh, the corporate income tax was so much higher than in most other countries of the world, uh, that probably has accelerated investment. And indeed, by the way, uh, capital investment in 2018 as a percentage of gross domestic product was at a record high. And and so uh, so it's not Belied in the numbers at all, but but of course that doesn't solve the matter completely because of course you know progressives will have all kinds of other measures of what kind of tax breaks you want to give you know do do you because clearly the, if you care about uh, you know giving breaks to people of limited means and that's a very different criterion but there's no but but certainly there's no denying that. That there will be an investment effect if you give a tax break uh, to to people or to corporations that have much more of a tendency to invest the money than 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 have a tendency to uh, to just consume the money. I guess guess the consumption part of it comes from the Keynesian fallacy that that consumption is somehow or other what. Powers the economy. There, there. I like to tell the joke about how Robinson Crusoe uh, leaves the island and he's interviewed by the media, and he asks, he's asked how did you survive on the island, and he says, well, I'll, I, I consumed, and when the economy slowed <laughs> down, I consumed some more. You know, so clearly. <laughs> Clearly, you can't consume in order to produce, you know, to, what the Crusoe economics applies to real economics. So so the trickle down, if the trickle down is just saying that if you give a tax break to somebody with more of a, more of a tendency to save and invest, then, then, it, then it will be more of that tax break will be invested and the investment will go to others because investment, by the way, the first dollars of that investment actually do go to workers. Uh, because that's the nature of capitalism. You, you, have to pr- you have to produce first and you have to employ people to produce the goods or services you're going to sell. And then you wait for the profits to come in. And so all, all of that part, uh, th- that part of trickle down economics uh, has
1: some validity. Well, it, it, that just kind of leads me to the next question. Like yeah. the rich hoarding their wealth. I mean, are oh, you, oh, when yeah. you're referring to uh, a, you know, an average of one third's uh, savings and investment, you know, the wealthy are going to be doing that, of course, more than middle class uh, yeah. would, um, or yeah. even the upper middle class. But yeah. is that the same as what what the left often says is they're hoarding their wealth? I mean, f- forget the maybe sending it overseas kind of scenario, but like i've I've been I've read these articles, and I honestly, I've just read the headlines because I'm like I don't I don't really want to read these, but it's along the lines of like, oh well, these companies just did stock buybacks and now the the CEOs and the board and the you know the top the top brass of these companies are the ones that are reaping the rewards and it's not really going to the worker, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, well, again, to you know to unpack that one uh, first let's you know let's admit the worst, obviously. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe Tom Cruise does get too much, you know, I mean, he's a uh, you know he's probably a billionaire. maybe uh, you know uh, others uh, like uh, you know like Oprah Winfrey get too much, uh, pay too much. Uh, and maybe the CEOs are getting paid too much. It's a quote, you know, I' putting that in quote. Uh, maybe I, I think I think there is a certain fetish on the star system. Uh, in all institutions, maybe it's exaggerated. You know, it has its counterpart in, in the myth that that William Easterly, the economist, exposed the idea that you're going to attribute the fast growth in any economy to 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 the politicians in charge, you know, a certain cult of leadership. Uh, a friend of mine was was saying that actually the, the the idea of a bankable movie star doesn't hold up empirically. That's that it's an illusion. So let's ama- let's assume, and let's agree that maybe there are a lot of people who who are overpaid uh, and wouldn't overpaid in the sense that a more that, that if institutions we have were a little bit more rational they wouldn't be paid quite as much as they are paid now i began by answering your question about the distribution of consumption and indeed the distribution of consumption is unequal and uh, and tom cruise and jeff bezos and and bill gates and the rest of them live better than the rest of us live although as i've also said they have larger houses but and they have certain amenities we lack, but but in terms of what's important, one wonders whether inequality is 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 narrower than ever before. But now get to, to the next part of what you talked about, which is hoarding. Um, the 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 idea. I mean, if, if Bill Gates or or is hoarding now, obviously what he does with his money is he he basically donates it. Uh, Bezos is hoarding his money. Uh, he obviously is not doing that. But let's say somebody does hoard a billion dollars worth of money. Uh, it doesn't do any harm. It's it's a hoarding. by hoarding, I presume that presumably means that they actually do have these these mattresses of hundred dollar bills and they sleep on these mattresses. Maybe that's a night. Nice, maybe they're nice mattresses with a hundred dollar bills in them. And uh, and they and they do nothing with all that money. But all that means is that it's just subtracted from the money supply. It it uh, it doesn't get consumed. It doesn't get invested. Uh, It's just nullified. It doesn't get in anybody's way. Um, But uh, but but what. What they're really doing—I mean, maybe we don't want to go down that route because it's a complete fantasy—but but I do insist, of course, that people—Silas Marner, in in, uh, in in the novel *Silas Marner* by George Eliot—did indeed, you know, he put all his money in gold and he kept it in a basement. You know, so there are indeed some crazy misers. But but if we if we were to unpack that one, they really are doing no harm. They're simply retiring money. from the rest and the, and that means, of course, to the extent that they don't spend it, that means in that insofar as that's concerned, prices are lower. Uh, prices are everything are lower. Stocks prices are lower. So we can all, we can cherry pick cheaper prices of consumer goods and stocks. And because those people are not spending their money, they're just hoarding it in mattresses. So so that in itself is not a problem anyway. However, uh, we do know that as a practical matter, rich people like to put their money to work for them when they're not, when when they're not giving it to government and when they're not uh, giving it away to charity. Then they like to invest it, and 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 the the buyback craze, uh, the the the, in terms of the obvious dynamics of buyback, the company buys buys back its stock, and and let's say it buys back a billion dollars worth of stock. The billion dollars goes to the shareholders who want to sell their stock to the company, and that billion dollars. Go, in the hands of the shareholders is is probably invested elsewhere. Maybe some of it is consumed, but but since these shareholders tend to be well-heeled investors, they're probably reinvesting it elsewhere. Uh, and in that sense, it's a more efficient reallocation of capital because when the company is doing buybacks, it means it doesn't have many good uses for the marginal dollar and so that it's earning. So those dollars go back to the shareholders and the shareholders then reallocate those dollars to better uses. Usually to investment uses. And then, as I said, that if we look at the broad picture, we find that any measure just in the national income accounts, we find that capital investment, investment in structures, equipment, software and intellectual property and R&D is at a record high as a share of GDP. And so what is there to complain about if we want money invested, if we'd like to see money invested in order to expand the economy? And so that's the simple dynamic. You know, it doesn't, obviously, if you want to protest about the fact, however, I want to give the devil his due. If you think that CEOs are overpaid and that Tom Cruise is overpaid, maybe you have a point. However, I would not want to see this money. Now there's another issue. I would not want to see this money go into the government's cheese factory. Uh, I think that I, I would rather see these people uh, even spend it a little bit on their own ridiculous McMansions or on their private jets. But in fact, for the most part, they, they give it away, uh, usually to something reasonably worthy, uh, or for the most part, uh They invest it, and and that investment usually ends up helping the rest of it, rest of us.
1: I kind of wonder that we're not in a bubble. I mean, like the word on the street, and when I kind of talk to people about it, it's like it seems like we're overdue for a some sort of recession or correction in the market. I mean, it's been over, it's been what like ten years since the last you know major uh, happening. Uh, so, you know, what's, what's your take on that? I mean, obviously you can't predict the future, um, but what, what do you think?
0: Well, yeah, the, the, certainly the, 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 argument, the argument for the bubble, uh, I think is inadequate, but, but at least, uh, obviously the, the bubble theorists have a very, very powerful talking point. I mean, the obvious one is this, uh, interest rates, uh, by almost any standard have been below, uh, the market rate. The, below what the what if we allowed only allowed the market to determine interest rates we, we then interest rates probably would have been higher uh, and uh, and and uh we, we I say probably because we can never quite be sure uh, but but certainly the, the central bank as you know is maintaining like zero uh, percent interest uh, short-term interest rates which anchored a lot of other interest rates in addition even the longer term interest rates that we have uh, have been favored by the fact that the u.s is you know it, it has its problems as an economy but 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 the problematic economy is still better than so many others and so a lot of investment income pours in and keeps interest rates low the the, the US government sells its Treasury debt for low interest rates and so so we we have likely had uh, interest rates that are below the market rate and that is and, and many uh, will say then that, that that's just pre- prima facie compelling evidence that, that, that we're in a bubble, that there's obviously been uh, misallocated investment that, that's created unsustainable conditions. And so, I, I, again, I regard that as a powerful talking point, uh, but not necessarily a completely convincing argument because, um, first, when we can't be absolutely sure that those that those low interest rates are necessarily uh, lower, that much lower, I should say, than what the market rate would have been. And secondly, uh, we can't be completely deterministic, even even assuming that those interest rates are too low. That 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 we that we are therefore looking at powerful bubbles, strong bubbles. Now, then, when I try to round up the usual suspects, and I look at the stock market, I look at the housing market. Uh, uh, then I do see something, I, I do see conditions in which uh, the, uh, there's been a certain amount of asset inflation, but I, I don't see evidence of bubbles absolutely staring us in the face. I don't see, for example, especially in, in, the, case of, in the case of the stock market, it, it should have been clear to anybody by the year 2000 that, that, that uh, there was a stock market bubble just in terms of, of the conventional measures of price and earnings, price-earnings ratios. Uh, uh it should have been clear to anyone uh by uh by the year 2002 uh or even even before then that that we were looking at a house price bubble as well just in, just by any measure in terms of house prices in relation to rents for example uh or uh, or house prices in relation to median incomes but But if you look at those measures of of what alerted us to bubbles in the stock market and in the housing market in those years, then those same measures are not absolutely uh, blaring bubble today. Uh, So that's the best I can do. Uh, I I, I, I hope for the best. I don't want to see any other kind of crash such as we had in 07 and 08 and 09. So maybe that's wishful thinking. But I do think that at the very least to revert those who point to the low interest rates as, as as the solid case for a bubble, I think I'm missing the points that I just made.
1: So, Gene, uh, a couple of years ago, in 2016, you founded, co-founded the Soho Forum, uh, which I recently came across, uh, I would say maybe about four or five months ago, and I've been voraciously listening to uh, the content. So why don't you share with our listeners a little bit more about the Soho Forum?
0: Sure. Thank you. Uh, Well, um, I had been, uh, to to give you a reasonable good thumbnail history, I I, uh, I had been uh, managing, uh, for a philanthropist named Vic Niederhofer, a series that he called Junto. It it took place in Midtown, and he asked me to manage it for him. And I said, well, it sounds like fun. So uh, in many cases, I would organize debates at this monthly thing called Junto. And then Vic uh, shut down his Junto, and some of my young friends urged me to try to raise money for my own debate series, uh, and I was motivated to do that. I I do feel uh, strongly that the model that I wanted to build was in terms, to some degree, an answer to the problems I think with many debating societies. Uh, I, I, I adhere strictly to a one against one debate. One person against one person, because I find that when it's two against two, uh, you know, you have more diversity, but but you pay a huge price. Uh, it's very difficult to get each of those pairs to to actually coordinate in terms of their what they say in in the debate. On top of that, each of those four people gets only about gets far less time to make their points, and so I thought of that as a broken model. And uh, so it's always one against one, because then each person knows if there's going to be anything said on your behalf in terms of this resolution, then you've got to say it. The burden is on you. Each person then can talk, uh, at, at the introductory remarks are for at least 12 minutes, 12 to 15 minutes, so that you get adequate amount of time to talk, not just in sound bites. I mean, you listen to the Tucker Carlson show, it's a dizzying ping pong game where People are are just sort of shouting epithets at each other across <laughs> across a divide. It's no debate at all. But people get in, in the debate I've got, which I've got set up, which is going to be the standard: of 15 minutes for the affirmative, 15 minutes for the negative, then five minutes of rebuttal for each side. So they get uninterrupted time. Then they go to the Q and A, and they can ask each other questions. And then they go to summaries, so that there's Q and A time for people to, to respond to each other. But there's plenty of opportunity for them to establish their case so they can talk in paragraphs and not sound bites. And and, and, and then on top of that, I do Oxford-style voting, which means that you vote, the audience votes uh, through, through a special app for, against, or undecided on the, on the debate resolution. And then after the debate is over, they vote once again, and whoever moves the vote in his or her favor, you know, technically wins the debate. So this this then becomes a sort of theatrical occasion, which which is the reason why once I started the solo form and raised some money from the great philanthropist, by the way, named Don Smith, uh, who is a special friend and a great guy who, who who launched me. Then, by after a few debates, I found that we're getting so many people showing up for the theatrical evening and for the fun of voting for and against on the resolution that, in order to manage the crowds, we started to charge uh, for admission. And and now it's the standard admission is $24 a ticket um, in a hall that seats about $200, $12 for students. And we generally sell out almost every event. And Reason, then Reason uh, Video adopted us. And they we started recording the events early on. Reason Video adopted us and now releases our videos on podcast and on video. And uh, I've had over 40,000 hits views for the podcast for the video I did in which I uh, debated Baskos and Kara on socialism for our for our debate on bitcoin we have had 450,000 views because that's off the wall we're going to have a uh, we're going to have a debate on on climate change in uh, in may um, we're going to have, uh, well, I'm sorry, rather in April, uh, we're going to have a uh, a debate on uh, on whether the robots are taking all our jobs in August. Uh, I'm going to have another debate in November on socialism. Uh, I was accused, I, I debated Basco and I was only 29 years old, and I was told I was Picking on a young guy, so I'm now going to debate a guy named Richard Wolf, who's actually even a little bit older than I, so I won't be accused of picking on somebody my own size. Uh, I'm not picking on somebody my own size, so that'll be me uh, in in November debating Richard Wolf. Uh, go to go to the and you'll see that we have debates booked uh, through November of this year. Uh, and, uh, and, and then if you're in the New York area or if you find a good excuse to come to New York, coincided uh, with an evening at the Soul Forum. So I hope you can all come.
1: Well, uh, yeah, and I, I'll second that for Gene. Uh, I've been, like I mentioned earlier, voraciously consuming the videos. It is entertaining. It's also enlightening. I've I've listened to probably a couple of debates where I I still take the negative on the resolution, but the person defending the negative actually uh, did a what I thought was a convincing job. I was like, okay, well, I've heard that in a light that I've never heard before. So uh, even if you already know whether or not you're decided on a particular issue, uh, it's definitely worth worth watching or or just listening to.
0: I think I think it does. In my, I I will say I I won't even divulge because I wouldn't want prejudice. I wouldn't want the person involved in these debates. In one particular case, my my views were radically were pretty radically changed because of the debate but in every case in my own case my my views and my understanding of the of the different sides to the debate is greatly sharpened and enhanced i so i i, I hope that happened that has happened to you as you suggest and that that happens to other people as well
1: excellent well gene sure. thanks for being on our podcast to talk about a whole a, a whole host of things and sure. uh maybe we'll have you on soon t- soon sometime
0: my pleasure thanks again bye-bye
1: You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group. You are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.